Today's sermon passage is Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So our Father and our God, we pray very simply. Would you speak your word to us today? Would you not allow us to leave here without truly hearing, truly being confronted with who you are, truly being called to lay aside all things for Christ? And Lord, would you cause me to be a faithful messenger? Would you cause me to not speak my words, but your words? Would you cause me not to give my ideas, but your truth? Would you work in your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you haven't already, please take your Bibles and turn with them to the book of Hebrews 13. If you're our guest today, we're working our way through the book of Hebrews. This is how we approach preaching on a week-to-week basis. And um, today we come to chapter 13. Our sermon is entitled, Kingdom Life. And so what we're going to see today in this passage, and I want to state this as simply as I can. The book of Hebrews is written to the people of God. It's written to the church, it's written to Christians, it's written to those who belong to Christ. It's written to those who know that our sins are forgiven. We know we have a place in the family of God. And the book is written to enable us to live in a way that builds and shares in and delights in the work of Jesus in the world. A good, nerdy, Bible geek term for the work of Jesus in the world is the kingdom of God. And so, in short, what this passage says is if we belong to Jesus, Jesus cares how we live. And Jesus cares that we live to further and to invest in and to engage with His work in the world. So that's the truth. Now here's my fear. My fear is that we overly complicate this. Like one thing I love deeply about our church is that we love theology. We love truth. We love the depths of the riches of the grace of God as revealed to us in the faiths of Jesus and particularly as revealed to us in the Scripture. But as those types of Christians who love to nerd out on things like that and wear corduroy jackets with the little patches, we can overcomplicate things. And so my burden today is that we see in Hebrews 13 
that this type of kingdom living, this type of living to promote and build and invest in what Jesus is doing is not complicated. It's profound. It's supernatural. It requires the Spirit, but it's not that complicated. So let me give you an illustration. hope it'll help. If not, just pretend that it does, okay? So I remember my wife and I have been married for almost 20 years. I remember when we were doing like our premarital counseling thing. Um, by the way, six sessions, one hour, prepare for marriage. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> and I have a great marriage. But anyway, I, like, but I remember one bit of wisdom from that. The person who did our counseling said, the majority of your fights will be about money and sexuality. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Now, it would be grotesquely wrong of us to reduce marriage to money and sexuality. But how we express our sexuality and how we think about and pursue possessions are big pieces of married living. So is it the whole thing? No, but it's important. And so what Hebrews 13 is going to say to us is living for the kingdom is this huge thing. It's huge. And it really can't be boiled down to one sermon, so much so that I got a third of the way through this in the first service, okay? It can't be boiled down to a few practical things. But there's five things in this passage, five commitments, five loves, that will get us a long way down the path of living for the things of Jesus. It's not all of it, but it's a great start. And it's supernatural, but it's not rocket science. And so I want us to leave here today going, okay, I need the Spirit, but I have the Spirit, and I can live for the kingdom. I need the Spirit. We need the Spirit. We have the Spirit, but we can live for the kingdom. I just want us to see that it's not that complicated. It's, hard. it's difficult in the sense that we have to come to the end of ourselves, we have to repent, we have to follow another, but it's not rocket science. So, let's look at this in terms. Now, now your question as a listener of a sermon should be, but is that really what the passage says? So if you're a note taker, first point, kingdom, life, and love. Kingdom, life, and love. And by love, I'm not talking about romance. I'm not talking about romance novels. I'm not talking about anything like that. I'm talking about love as this, this commitment of value in our lives. What we love the most is what we pursue. So kingdom, life, and love. So really, the best way to read Hebrews 13 is to go back to chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Um, And I think what we can read is all of Hebrews 13 is actually the practical application of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. So let's read those together. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so what this passage says 
is that everyone who belongs to Jesus is a worshiping citizen of his kingdom. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so the idea here is if, if we're Christians, if we're in Christ, if we've repented of our sins and turned to Christ for salvation, we have received his kingdom. We belong to him. We belong to his family. We belong to his church. And we belong to his kingdom. And everything else in the world will be shaken away when Christ returns such that all that will stand for eternity is Jesus and His kingdom and His people and the things of His kingdom. So let us be grateful that we're a part of the kingdom that cannot be shaken. So in short, the kingdom of Jesus is the work of Jesus to redeem, to save, and build a people, and to move this earth to a place where His kingdom is everything forever. And so, the kingdom of Jesus is where Jesus is the King. It's where the, the will and the way and the word of Jesus is is exalted above all else. It's where the people of Jesus dwell and display, dwell in the presence of Jesus and display the power of Jesus and pursue the things of Jesus. So if we're a Christian, we are by definition members of multiple kingdoms. If we're a Christian, we're a member of the kingdom of Jesus. But then there are tangible kingdoms all around us. You could say that if you're a citizen of the United States, you are a citizen of the kingdom of the United States. If you live in a particular subdivision that has those wretched neighborhood covenants about where you can put your trash can and can't put your trash can, then you could say... That you're a citizen of the kingdom of your HOA. Perhaps your workplace. Perhaps your extracurricular activity. So the reality is we're all citizens of multiple kingdoms. But the calling here is not to get rid of all the other ones. It's to exalt the one that will last forever. So the calling of a Christian is to pursue and celebrate and identify with and work for the kingdom that will last forever, and that's the kingdom of Jesus. Okay, great, pastor. How do I do that? Hebrews 13, I believe, is written to help us know how to do that. But before we move on, just note this. If we are a part of the kingdom... Our lives are no longer our own. They belong to Jesus. If we're a part of the kingdom, our days are no longer our own. They belong to Jesus. If we're a part of the kingdom, our families are no longer our own. They belong to Jesus. If we're a part of the kingdom, our work and our school and our extracurricular activities and the things we do for fun on the weekends And how we spend our leisure time is no longer our own. It belongs to Jesus. And he cares about what we do with that. 
And there is a cultural Christian motif that runs throughout the southern United States, which says, if I go to church and give some money and do a few things for people, then I've given Jesus what he wants and I can just go do what I want. This passage would say, we belong to a kingdom that supersedes all things. So let us use our whole life as an acceptable act of worship to the king of the kingdom. Everything belongs to him. Okay, so how do we do it? How do we do it? Again, so the second point is five loves. If five loves feels too Christian romance novel for you, they do have those, right? You've never read one. Okay, whatever. Maybe they shouldn't, but I think they're a thing. Okay, if five loves feels too Christian romance novel to you, think of this as five commitments. Five dispositions of the soul that can shape everything we have. And as I said earlier with my little illustration about marriage, I'm not saying that these five loves are everything. I'm saying these five loves are a great way to get moving forward. And today we're only going to look at two of them because I talk too long. I'm actually choosing to believe that it's because Dan sang too long, but we know that's not true. Um, so we'll finish these next week. So if you're, our visit, if you're a guest today, thank you for being here. And now I've bait and switch. You've got to come back. Welcome. Um, so five commitments, five loves that shape us to live for the kingdom. Now, what I, what I hope you'll see is that these five loves are not that um, intellectually difficult to get our minds around. They're not that intellectually difficult to understand. You don't actually need a Greek New Testament to understand them. You don't even need a commentary. But I also want you to see that living out these five commitments in total, all of them, we don't get to pick and choose, but living out these five commitments is the work of the kingdom. It's not like we do our personal devotional life with Jesus and then we go live for the kingdom. This is the work of the kingdom. And so those five loves or those five commitments, I'll go ahead, because some of you are like, dude, you need to tell me all of them because I, I can't leave, you know, hanging chads. I can't have unfinished sentences. So, so let me go ahead and give you, I'll give you all five of them and then we're going to look at two of them today. Number one, love for God's people. Love for God's people. Number two, the passage says love for strangers, or you might say love for all people. Number three, love for suffering brothers and sisters. Number four, love for marriage. And number five, Don't love money. I couldn't figure out how to make that one a love. Like, that's really bad, like homiletics. Like, like love without money. Anyway, don't love money. Okay. So four loves and one unloved. How about that? Okay. Um, so these five things are the work of the kingdom. And I'm just going to give a little pastoral aside where it says love for marriage. It's okay if your life is an imperfect script on this. There will be no judgment and shame. 
but love and compassion and calling. We'll talk about that next week. So these five commitments shape life for the kingdom. There's more, but these five are all vital. They're all important, and they all move us into this path of gratefully living a life of worship unto the Lord as citizens of His kingdom. So, number one, love for God's people. We see this in verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. So, you have a command. You have an imperative. And sometimes, you know, I talked about Christians making things harder than they have to be. When the Bible has a command in it, it's very simple. God wants his people to do it, particularly when it's in the New Testament. God wants his people to do it. Not to earn our salvation, not to earn our place in this kingdom, but because it's how we live as citizens of his church and of his family and of his kingdom. So let, it's a command. What's the command? Let brotherly love, and brotherly love there um, means love for the people of God. Love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let brotherly love, my English version says, continue. But I think that language is a little soft, actually. That sounds like let your direct deposits continue. Like you just kind of queue it up and it just happens every so often. But that's not the word. The, the, the word is actually the word for persevere. Just like we're called to persevere in this race, We're called to persevere, to continue, even when it's difficult, in brotherly love. So what this passage is assuming is the teaching of the New Testament that God doesn't save individuals, put us in bubbles so that we can relate individually to Him. He saves individuals personally into His family. The Christian life The kingdom of Jesus is lived out as the family of God. And that family is called upon to look like and to manifest love for one another. The idea is that we entered the family because God poured His love into us. And as the family, we are free to freely love one another, care for one another, sacrifice for one another, invest in one another pursue one another, pray for one another, help one another, and let all those one another's be pushed back onto us because of what Christ has done for us. Let brotherly love continue. It would be the will of God that the people of God would be shaped by love for one another. And so this means... That God wants us to make space for others in our living. Physical space, emotional space, spiritual space, crying space, praying space, hurting space, celebrating space. He wants us to make space for one another's in our living. 
The Christianity of the New Testament is not a cul-de-sac with the garage door shut kind of faith. It's a whole bunch of people living in a refugee camp under tents with no separation kind of faith. And those words are all intentionally chosen, by the way. So here's my question, friends. Because we belong to the kingdom, because Jesus cares how we live, Will we make space for others in our living? Will we make space for others in our expression of faith? And guys, this in the New Testament is why the local church matters. Let's just make this personal. If you don't live in Hendersonville today, just pretend that you do. Can we do that for a minute? Okay, let's just all pretend we live in Hendersonville. You know, Gallatin, Westmoreland, it all matters, but I'm going to use Hendersonville. There's about 65 to 70,000 people that live in Hendersonville, Tennessee. According to statistics, over 55,000 of them claim faith in Christ. Over 55,000 of them claim to belong to Jesus, which means, let's just assume the claim's true for this conversation. That means that over 55,000 people in this town are a part of the kingdom of Jesus. But when I read the New Testament, I don't see a call to pursue actively brotherly love with all 55,000 of those people. It's not possible. But the people who received the New Testament were Christians in relationship with one another. We call that church membership. We call that covenant. And so what it means to belong to the church is to say, these are the people where I'm going to live out the New Testament one another's and allow them to live that out with me. So if you're a part of Redeemer, all the people that the Lord's bringing here, it's His desire that we make space to love them well. There's not a place in the New Testament where we get to close up our heart and say, I'm all full, no vacancy. Like a hotel back in the day. You know, when people actually walked in to book them instead of doing it online. Okay, we don't get to do that. We don't get to do that. And friends, if you're here today kind of looking for a church, trying to figure out where God's wanting you to land, Preaching matters, theology matters, worship matters, convictions matter. But choose the place where you're going to invest enough to love and be loved. Because that's the biblical picture here. Okay, some of you are like, man, this is good. I need a little more of it. Good, we're going to go to the next point because it's going to help us go there, okay? Next point. So number two is love for strangers. This is huge. Come back next week. We're going to talk about that, okay? But for the sake of consistency and the sake of, you know, that whole prayer time we had for the persecuted church earlier, I got to get to number three. So number next is love for suffering brothers. Love for suffering brothers. Now, now I want the love for the suffering brothers to also be an application of just love for one another because it's there. So listen carefully to what he says in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison. And I think it's, it's accurate and fair to read in prison, not just everybody who's in prison, 
but particularly those who are in prison for the cause of Jesus. Because in chapter 10, verse 32, he says, But recall the former days when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the better possession and the abiding possession is the kingdom, and he's talking about those in prison who have that possession. So particularly, he's calling on the church to remember our brothers and sisters who are in prison for the cause of Jesus. Okay, good, good. How do we remember them? How do we remember them? As though in prison with them. How how does God want me to love those who are suffering for the cause of Jesus? The same way that I would want to be loved if I was the one in prison. That kind of sounds familiar, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Apply it to the one another's here. Reach out, pray for, care for, invest, love their family, as if it were you who were in prison. Okay, there's 140-something members here at Redeemer. The last time I checked, none of us were in prison for the cause of Jesus. So if we were, this would be a really important passage. Let's keep going. By the way, I do think that remember those who are in prison is an important piece for those who are physically being captive for the cause of Christ all around the world. Go to Voice of the Martyrs, read up on it, care, remember, and pray. Send notes, send letters, send prayer requests, stir up their care. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So not only remember those who are in prison, but remember those who are mistreated. Mistreated for what? For the faith. In the faith. Because of the faith. Well, how should we remember them? My English translation says, since you also were in the body. So the implication would be, we're all part of the body of Jesus. And if the foot is hurting, the whole body hurts. If the toe is hurting, the whole body hurts. If the shoulder is hurting, the whole body hurts. And those of us that are older are like, yeah, man, you are right. But actually, the Greek for, as those who are in the body, um, it's one of those hard, kind of vague, gray, difficult passages to interpret. And so some English versions, I believe the NIV, don't say as though since you also are in the body, but as if it were your own body. And so the idea would be, remember those who are mistreated as if you were the one being mistreated. Care for, pray for, love, serve, lean into, walk with, Meet the needs of those who are being mistreated for the cause of Christ. How deeply is the way you would want to be cared for in that situation? How prolonged the way you would want to be cared for in that situation? Okay, okay, so what does this mistreating look like? Well, it certainly looks like persecution. It certainly looks like suffering. But one of the difficulties and primary emphases of being in prison and being mistreated is that in some ways these people who are imprisoned and are perpetually being mistreated they feel separated from and distant from and cut off from the body 
And so as I've been praying this week, I've been thinking about, okay, Lord, who are those who feel cut off from the body? Feel separated from the body? That verse 3 would be calling us to love and care for and pursue as a manifestation of the love which Jesus has shown to us. And here are a few that I've come up with. I think about widows and shut-ins. Those who are literally stuck in a physical facility and can't get to the body of Christ. I think of new moms. They've just had a baby that won't sleep through the night. Has all these needs and poops its pants 30 or 40 times a day. They're isolated from their friends. They're isolated from community. They're isolated from relationships. Their hormones are doing crazy things. I think of single parents who are just so stinking literally and legitimately busy doing the work of mom and dad and the provision of mom and dad that there's no time for relationship and investment and engagement and they just feel cut off. I think of those who are adopting and fostering, who out of love for Jesus and love for those without parents are going and saying, come, I will make you my child. And yet, they're told to cocoon for 30 to 90 days. They're told to to cut themselves off from relationships. All for the good cause of, of connecting with this child and loving this child as Christ has loved them and yet they feel cut off from the body. I think of those who are divorced, who have been mistreated, who have been abused, who feel so emotionally distant and emotionally afraid that they don't feel like they can lean in and they feel cut off. And so I believe that if we put The first command, let brotherly love continue. And the second command, love the suffering together. There's this whole category of people who feel distant and separated and cut off. And we get to be the ambassadors of the love of Christ to them if we would just remember and we would just care and we would just learn the power of a well-timed text message or a well-timed phone call or a well-timed email or a well-timed stop on the front door just to say hey I wanted to see your face and tell you that I love you or a well-timed loaf of bread or a well-timed let me watch your kids so you can go take a shower and cry out to God or a a well-timed do you want to come have dinner with us and just sit and feel normal and feel accepted and feel the world slow down for a second? Or a well-timed, I love you, how can I pray for you today? Or a well-timed, I care that you are okay with Jesus and you're okay with the body. How can we love you today? I can't think of anything more powerful than to recognize that Christ has made that kind of love available and possible for us. And I can't think of a more winsome testimony about the power of Jesus than that type of love.
Now, friends, this is just a piece of the puzzle. Love for one another. Love for our suffering brothers. There's more to the puzzle, and we'll, we'll put those pieces in next week. But just hear me. Love for the brothers and love particularly for those who are suffering and separated and cut off is the work of the kingdom. And Jesus is calling us to this type of work. Will you join him in the work that he is already doing? Because here's the last thing that I want to say. Jesus is going to love and serve and care for and meet the broken and the lonely and the hurting and love them every step of the way, whether we do it or not, because that's the kind of Savior that he is. But I'm just telling you, there is no more joyful place to be than in the middle of the work that Jesus is doing for his kingdom. And I know so many ways that God is working in those who feel separate and distant and cut off. And I just can't tell the stories publicly because they're private. If you want to be overwhelmed with the grace of God anew in your life, go spend time with those who are suffering for the cause of Jesus, who feel cut off and separated, who need the love of Christ, and love them as you would want to be loved in those situations. Those of you who feel far off, Just know we need your love too. You've probably learned something about the grace of God that would benefit all of us. You've probably learned something about the mercy of Jesus that would benefit all of us. So just come and start caring. Come and start loving. Just as you are. Bring all your stuff with you. That's where Jesus is at work. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Because this type of love for one another that's powered by the Spirit of God is a part of this kingdom that will not be shaken. Let's pursue it. So our Father, I pray now that you would take these truths and you would do great work in them and through them. Help your people, Father, we pray. Congregation, at this time, as we do each week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. A piece of bread, a cup. These tell us of the broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood of Jesus for us. As you take them today, I'm going to ask you to do something different.
Don't look down and pray. Look up and look around. Because everybody that's taking that bread and everybody that's taking that cup, they're saying, I'm in Christ. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. Let's live for this kingdom together. And let's leave here with a vision for what God's doing in us and through us. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you to let the bread and the cup pass, not really to exclude, but because this is a celebration of what Christ has done. And if you haven't met Christ yet, I'd ask you to let them pass. But think of this, what would it look like today for me to turn away from my sin and turn to Jesus? And if you're ready to talk to somebody about that, talk to one of us. We'd love to help you take that next step of faith. So we're going to sing. Some guys are going to come pass out the bread and the cup, and then we'll take them together.